What's up, guys? My name is Ali. This is episode number 16 of the Mentality Podcast. Today, we have a special, special guest. I know I say that every episode, but I am serious about this one. When I came across this individual, I knew one day that our paths would cross in person and that we would have a podcast episode. And luckily, he agreed, and I'm so happy that he did. Here is Ilyas Bernay. Bernay or Bernie? Bernie. Bernie. Okay. Welcome. How's it going? Doing well, my friend. How are you? I'm doing good. This is really, really exciting. I... This happened sooner than I thought because I thought once this whole pandemic would finish, then we could kind of link up. But you were so gracious to allow me into your home, and I, I'm so happy. I'm one of those people that is energized by others, and I train youth for a living. Yes. You're the first one I've actually met in person since November 2019. So when you said, let's talk, I'm like, great, a real person live, <laughs> not on a screen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Zoom fatigue is a real thing, right? It is, especially for people that are on Zoom six hours a day, and then all of a sudden a new meeting or a new obligation comes mm -hmm. in, mm -hmm. and then it's two more hours. I see it all the time in my LinkedIn feed. On the right side, Zoom fatigue setting in, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, set yeah. Set in way before, but it happens. Yeah, absolutely. So for people that don't know, which is the majority of this audience, what do you do? Like, Do people call you a youth educator or a youth teacher how does that work well my official title is i'm the program lead for national initiatives at the international development and relief foundation okay. for those who have not heard of idrf we are a top 100 canadian charity we've been active since 1984 people call me their mentor they call me their career counselor they call me a program manager i actually like when people just call me their friend i'm the good friend that the emerging generation needs to support their career but the official title is program lead i really use it though awesome he has a program with called Get Job Ready. I took this for a few days it was, and it really opened my eyes on just the power of social media that I'm not using. So I was not utilizing platforms like LinkedIn, and I just the power I found in that is very profound. So thank you for that. No worries. So uh, let's start all the way back. So where you grew up and how that shaped you to be really who you are today. I was born and raised in Toronto. Okay. I've lived here my entire life except for two years where I moved to England for graduate school. That was okay. it. How it shaped me, you know what? Proud Canadian. As you know, I love the Toronto Raptors. It's a great country. It's a country mm -hmm. where you can succeed. There are so many opportunities, and I think I've taken advantage of a lot of them. Yeah, absolutely. No, I had this talk with my parents a few days ago prior to coming to Toronto, and, and we're just so... Uh, kind of looking back at pictures about how how I was raised and whatnot and although my parents were born and raised in Iraq they really truly consider Canada home and just from the freedom and just from all of it it's just overall a very safe mostly safe country and and I absolutely love it so after traveling to probably 30 countries I'm not somebody that wants to stay in another place for a long time after seven to 10 days, I usually want to go home. There's no greater feeling for me. Well, one of the great feelings is when you just land at Pearson, you say, welcome to Canada. <laughs> There's that energizing feeling. But my parents are the same way. They immigrated from India in their 20s. They got married. I think they went back once to sell their house. They really acclimated themselves well in the country. They're retired now. They live in Florida. And maybe one day they'll consider themselves Americans too. But you know what? There's a level of comfort in this country. It's clean. It's safe. Yeah. You can yeah. make a lot of friends. Yeah. Happiness index. I think we're at 11. We're not at the Nordic country level yet, but <laughs> we're pretty good still. No, absolutely. So from the very few times that we've spoken through Zoom, and this is the first time in person, I noticed that you really, truly love helping people. And it's a matter of 
if somebody you know succeeds, it feels as if you succeed, right? And there's not that many people I notice. I mean, I try to surround myself with friends and I'm sure people that are, are listening to this try to, or I hope you try to surround yourself with people that you want to succeed. But I noticed you, like you're one of the very few people that from the get-go, you just, you try to give as much value to people as possible. Where do you think that comes from? Just this whole need to help others constantly. You know what? I get asked that question quite a bit. I can't really pinpoint one answer, Ali. I will say this. I just enjoy what I'm doing, but I understand that we have obligations. And I always refer to you all as the emerging generation. Mm -hmm. For those of us that are part of the 30% that have job satisfaction, that enjoy their career, I always say to people, listen, we should be willing to lose sleep in the present so your generation doesn't have to lose sleep worrying about its future. And it's just fun. The two things I enjoy the most in my career is one, helping people find their first job. So people are struggling or maybe they haven't found the career they wanted, but we make some tweaks to their LinkedIn mm -hmm. or we make some tweaks to their resume. Those text messages that I get saying the interview went really well, got the job. Sometimes it's got the scholarship. You don't know how happy that makes me. That's my dopamine rush. Yeah. So when helping people, I'm actually kind of selfish because it means a lot to me, but I understand there's a moral obligation to help others too. And mm -hmm. I, more and more people should be doing that. Another thing I really enjoy, Ali, is helping people with public speaking. I'm a public speaking coach as well. That's not one of my official titles. I don't know that. Yeah. Oh, okay. But it's part of my job. I prepare a lot of youth to speak at our galas, speak at conferences. And a lot of times I do prepare them for larger job interviews. Public speaking is the world's number one fear. There's that classic Seinfeld joke that people are more scared of public speaking than death. So if they were at a funeral, they'd rather be sitting in the cast, lying mm -hmm. in the casket mm -hmm. than delivering the eulogy. Wow. So watching... <laughs> an 18, 19 year old, scared, nervous about an audience and sitting with them for hours, fixing speeches, making them more specific, but getting them comfortable in front of an audience. That's something I enjoy as well. That I can totally relate to the idea of being fearful in front of an audience. I remember in elementary school, and I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this because I've heard it on numerous other podcasts where if the teacher is, for example, trying to read something and then they expect another student to read the next sentence i would always be that person that would put my head down and pray that i don't have to read in front of the class because I, I just i stutter i get so nervous sometimes it comes out in these episodes where i have so much going on i just i bounce from idea to idea but i, I notice like you said if everybody is able to build their communication skills to a point where they could talk to one person the same way they talk to 100 people and convey their message uh, that's very powerful it's a skill it's really really challenging and it's daunting and what i always tell people is this it's one of the hardest skills to get good at that's why you fear it you know some people are scared when they drive for the first time but after driving for a few months driving becomes like breathing you rarely get a chance to speak in front of an audience you rarely are addressed dressing strangers in a large group so how do you get good at it if you're rarely practicing it whereas if you're shooting a jump shot or you're playing piano yeah. you can practice that as much as you want yeah. In Get Job Ready, if you notice the mock interviews, it's not just you all and your partners one-on-one -on -one back and forth. You practice one-on-one, -on -one, you get better at it in the 10, 15 minutes that you have, mm -hmm. but then you're presenting in front of a group of 30. Mm -hmm. If I can get you all to be comfortable in a group of 30, speaking in public, delivering your answers, I know the interviews will be much easier because it's a smaller group. I understand some people oh, find it uncomfortable, yeah. but there's a method to the madness. Yeah. I want to prepare you to kill it in the interviews. Remember. It's not just one person applying for a job. It's you're competing with five or six other people. So how do I get my students ready to take it to that next level? That's one of them. Yeah. For the Get Job Ready program, I noticed the premise of the whole program 
seems enticing enough where you don't need to add an incentive mm-hmm. of financial gain. So my friend who listens to this episode, his name is Luis. Mm-hmm. Shout out to you. He, our man in Vancouver. Yes, he's fin- how he's is Vancouver Luis? Right he's he's doing well. Tell myself, yeah, great I will, guy. I will. I'll pass it on along. So he. He told me about this opportunity mm-hmm. to uh, to join the program, and I said, "Sure, I'll give it a try." But then once he told me, "Hey, by the way, you also get compensated for just being there and participating." Why do you think that is to put a honorarium? Yeah, yeah. To, to put that, do you think just people won't come, or the the hour or the several hours that you have with them to actually help them in the end? Because you're helping them, right? You mentioned earlier how helping people is almost a selfish act for you, but if you zoom out and look at it, you're helping them. So by putting this honorarium. Uh, why do you think that is? Like, why do you need to put that there? The youth won't show up unless the honorarium is there. If you look at the commitment that we ask to participate in our program, it's not one day, 90 minutes. It is four days. Now, you did the online program, so that's three hours. If I tried to advertise an online program that was four or five hours, I'm not getting signups. But the in-person program usually is four and a half to five hours. The reason the honorarium is there for a couple of reasons. One, you could be taking a young person away from a part-time job, a minimum wage job. Or you could be taking somebody away from time where they could be spent studying. So you have to understand what an 18 to 24-year-old is going through. I mean, the the program is for 18 to 29-year-olds, but usually the demographic stands younger. And another thing is this. Think about your appointments with your guidance counselor. Think about the appointments at the career centers. Think about the other job workshops that are out there. They're usually not fun. And this is what youth have told me. They said, you know, in university, and no disrespect to the career centers, but what I often hear is you're rushed in and out 30 minutes. I have guidance counselors that... Basically, we're pessimistic. They didn't tell me I can amount to anything. I hear that often. So why would someone come, multiply that by four days and multiple hours? Why would someone enter otherwise? So we make sure there's no barrier to entering the program. And we get people in. Once we get you all in and you realize after day one, things are a little different. You're connecting with people. You're making jokes. You're making friends. You have icebreakers. But I'm tweaking your LinkedIn. I'm telling you things like you said. I didn't realize how much you could do on LinkedIn. The next day, I didn't realize how much better I can get at job interviews Mm -hmm. within a one or two day period. Mm -hmm. Then you start to realize why this is four days and why the program is very well respected. But I've got to get you in the door first. Otherwise, it's just another career program. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, How long have you been teaching this program for? Three years. I started December 2017, University of Calgary. On campus, we didn't have many participants, I think it was nine or 10 at the pilot because a lot of people didn't know about our program. A month later, we go to the Islamic Institute of Toronto. We have a diverse group. IDRF serves all kinds of communities, irrespective of race, religion, background, does not matter. If you need help, we will help you. And then it was about eight or nine young women at IIT. Now we're at a point where there are wait lists. They're usually 25, 30 per room, especially in the in-person sessions, but it has been since December 2017. So wow, okay. And what have you learned from all the teenagers or the age bracket that you've taught? Has there been one thing that stood out above the rest in terms of uh, like just the th- almost three years that, that you've been doing it for? Yeah, you said. They're a lot more forward thinking and responsible than I thought. And I'll give you one example. Sure. We teach a financial literacy module. And, you know, every gotcha, Get Your Buddy session starts with an icebreaker. And the question we ask you all is this. If you were given a million dollars, how would you spend it? When my director, Nabil Ali, and I were coming up with these questions and thinking about what people would say, we had these guesses. I'm going to go party. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to go on this trip. Almost always, the answers we get, though, are I'm going to give my parents money. 
I'm investing and saving. I want to make my money work for me. I'm going to buy a house and invest in property. I'm going to pay off my student loans. You do not get superficial answers from this generation. If you think the millennials and Zoomers are zoned out, that they don't have a head on their shoulders, no. you're simply giving into a stereotype. Yeah. And I'll go back to the dream job question. Is we assumed that people would say something along the lines of the celebrity jobs, you know, the cool jobs. I want to be a singer. I want to be yeah. an athlete. Yeah. Yeah. I want to be a rich CEO. Yeah. Again, nothing wrong with that. Those are wonderful aspirations if that's what you want to do. But the answers I consistently get is I want to start a charity. I want to be an engineer, but I want to be an engineer in poor countries to help them build their infrastructure. I want to see people improve their lives in public health. Almost always, this generation is looking to give back. If you follow Deloitte, Deloitte has something called the... Sorry, who? Deloitte, the top four consulting firm. Okay. They have something called the, the Millennial Survey. Every year, they look at the views of people, the young people in the world, and not just in the United States, all over the world. And what is consistent is career-wise, they want to know they're leaving an impact. And I had been reading these surveys. All of a sudden, you see it in practice every time you run a workshop or every time you run a class. It's a substantive generation. That's interesting you say that because the mass media tries to portray this younger generation as very gimme, 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 selfish, selfish, selfish. But you're saying quite the opposite about how they want to about how they want to help people and whatnot. Look, there are millions of millions of young people across the world. Some are like that. Of course. I just find they're in the very few. Every older generation will cast dispersions on the generation coming up. But because I interact with them every single day, like literally I'm talking to someone from the emerging generation every day, I see all the good sides. I see some negatives as well, but it's really not unique to their particular generation. Mm -hmm. So when you interact with people all the time and you make connections and you see the, see the positive, any sense of a generalization dissipates. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Ever since I met you, I've been wanting to ask this question in person. Mm -hmm. So I'll ask her now. What do you think is holding back the younger generation from getting the jobs that they want coming out of college and university? Because I'm in that boat and I know people are as well. It's a good question. You know what? The way I see it is this. It really depends on that particular individual. Remember I just told you I see the good and the bad? So I see the people that got the jobs they wanted. My former student, Carrie Pierce, she's in Calgary. She had studied HR for four years at the University of Calgary. She got a job within 30 days. Another wow. uh, student of mine, Cece Wang, she's out in Halifax. I believe she's a reservist for Canada's Armed Forces. So in terms of what's holding people back, actually a lot of people are doing great things. Women Learning to Code and Take Leadership, that's another program that I run. That is 100% employment rate. These are young women that want to become developers in a field that is predominantly male. And they have not only found jobs, they found job satisfaction. Now, you do get people that are struggling as well, people that have not been able to find jobs. A couple of things. We're in the midst of a pandemic, and youth unemployment is really, really been hit hard. If you look at the numbers, young women, and I'm talking about young women ages 15 to 24, their numbers are down 10% from last year. Young men, about 7%. So we've got to recover employment. But a lot of times, my friend, this is a skills-based economy. People say it all the time. A lot of people just don't have the skills, or over four years in education, didn't accumulate the skills to be marketable to a potential employer. That's not everyone, but that's one of the problems people have. I always tell people, listen, it's wonderful that you have an education, but did you learn Excel? Did you learn Adobe? Do you have those in-demand technical skills that people that want? They need, yeah. That is often the barrier. 
And you can overcome that barrier, but you should have it. I think the best education, it does take place often in university and colleges, but often it's what you're doing outside. outside. Yeah, we're making LinkedIn Learning available for people yeah. on Get Job Ready shortly, and they'll have access to a lot of these courses. But my favorite story about this was about Bill Gates. You know, Bill Gates is known for his dropping out of university. It's of like, course. I know, what a bum, right? <laughs> but when he was coming up with Windows, he was going into the computer lab late at night and building this concept. It's not something he did uh, as part of his formal education, from what I know of the story, right? So is, are you building your skill set outside of what you've already done, that's key. Another thing is networking. We teach networking oh, so every single day. A lot of people start networking once they're looking for a job, but it should be a way of life from when you are a teenager. I was teaching some of our L2L students earlier this week. Sorry? Uh, L2, oh, License to Learn, sorry, I should have mentioned that. To learn. So we have three major Canadian programs at IDRF. We have Get Job Ready to help people navigate their careers. We have Women Learning to Code and Take Leadership to train a new generation of young developers. But we also have a free tutoring program for youth struggling in schools to get free tutoring service. But we also train the tutors. So the tutors are the high academic, mm. uh, high achieving students. They're Gosh. the ones doing the training. And what I tell them is, listen, 16, 17, build your networks, join as many student clubs as you can. When you're in university, yes, study hard, get good grades, go to as many parties, volunteer, co-op. I didn't do that as much as I wanted to, to, to expand and try to have a bunch of connections mm -hmm. uh, and I am kind of not reaping the benefits now. <laughs> Once I graduated, yeah. I noticed if I could go back, I would definitely. If you look at the successful people in the world, for example, people that go to top universities, yes, they go to top universities. They're often very smart, but they're also often very connected. That's the pathway. And so if you can build a strong network, but building a strong network just doesn't mean going to networking events. It means making meaningful connections, connections with people, yeah, have relationships invested in people. I tell people this all the time. Don't just call people when you need them. We're in a pandemic. There must be people you know that you think may be struggling or maybe having a tough time. Give them a shout. Ask them how they are. But don't just reach out to people when you need something because you're not investing in a relationship. Mm -hmm. It's not as meaningful. Mm -hmm. And that should be your way of life. I'm sure people that are listening to this have one person or know one person in the past where, where they would get a text or a call from them when they want one, one thing and one thing only. And it's like, how are you helping me when all I'm doing is helping you? We all have them. We have, I have them in my personal life. I have some in my professional life. Yeah. You always nod and, smile, nod and smile. Like for me personally though, when someone needs help, I will help them because one, it's my career. Two, I never want to be in a situation where that person didn't achieve something and I held them back. For me, it's look past it yeah. and help people when you can, but understand it's not what they should be. But doing. I get it. But like, at what point do you say, Hey, like I'm just giving, 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 and I'm not getting anything back right because like mm -hmm. a friendship or a connection is a two-way road that's how i see it no you're absolutely right and that's where a lot of bridges are burned and a lot of times ali we don't tell people what we're thinking we just steam inside if you have a relationship like that with someone you should say listen i hear from you whenever time you need something but where are you in the in-betweens so that's something you can have a conversation with people about i would recommend but for me, from a professional point of view, I would never say no to a young person that did our programs and said, can you write me a recommendation letter? And then I don't hear from them until they make the next request. Because no matter what, I still want them to succeed. But from a personal point of view, the people that I'm friends with, the people that I maintain relationships with, are usually the people I know reciprocate. Hmm. It's two-way, like you yeah, said. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I guess when I asked you that question, first of all, a very great answer, uh, oh, very insightful. The thing that I was thinking of was more the education system and i won't delve on this too long but just how 
it's almost like if you, I give this analogy where if you go to university or college, no hate to these insti- mm-hmm. institutions whatsoever because I, I did one. And I say how w- when you go into a program, most people, I think the number is 50, in the 50 percents, I don't know exactly. I could pull up a study later. It was saying how, and I'm part of this percentage, more than half of the people either don't know what they're doing first year or switch within the first two years. I switched after second year. Initially, I wanted to be a pharmacist, and that's what mm-hmm. I thought I wanted to be. After two years, I just told myself, this is not me. At the time, I was really down and almost depressed about it because I had my friends around me who were just who were just uh, going third year, fourth year, graduating, getting jobs, and I was still, I still didn't want what, what, what I wanted to do. So that really hurt me. And now, after I found what I liked, I tell people, when you go to a buffet and there's a bunch of different foods there, try to take a little bit of everything and taste it yeah. uh, if you can rather than just know that, okay, this is what I think I want and try to eat that one thing from the plate and not knowing what the other stuff tastes like. Because how else are you supposed to know what you truly like if you don't try a little bit of everything? Well, What do you say about that? A couple of things. Absolutely. You should try as many things as possible, both inside and outside school, but take a wide variety of courses, but, you know, learn an instrument, play a sport. But there's nothing, there's no reason to feel bad when other people start graduating or find their own and you don't. You sometimes find your stride later in life. And what I always tell people that are going through that struggle is that it does not matter where you start, it matters where you finish. That's key. Another thing with regards to education is a lot of times people financially don't plan for their education. The Government of Canada has a really cool tool where you can actually pinpoint how much your tuition is going to cost over a four-year period. So you have to look at yourself. If I go four years undergrad, how much is this going to cost me? Is the investment worth it? Will I find a job after? If not, you know what? You can look at two years of college or you get certain certificate programs. Google has its own tech training programs. Maybe you want to do that. But always be motivated, work hard, set high expectations for yourself, but don't feel bad when others start achieving big things. And that's one thing that you do get caught up because it's hard not to see someone else and your friends and your peers doing really, really well or, you know, decide what they want and you're not in that boat yet. It doesn't mean it's not going to happen. No, I learned that uh, very quickly because I was, I was really beating myself down and, and, and I, I had to realize, okay, whoever's listening to this, if you're 30, 35, and you still haven't figured your life out, it's not the end of the world. It's okay. And that took me a while to understand. Well, you know what's interesting? And I think uh, in educational institutions have to do their part as well. I'll give you an example. I'm not going to name the school or the degree, but actually what I was going to do is, I, because I'm so fascinated by the emerging generation, mm-hmm. is this was my plan before pandemic, I was going to take time and return to campuses and just sit in lecture halls and see what is being taught and what is being said and what the dialogues were. So I came across one university that has their degree page and they said career possibilities once you finish. And I just looked at this and one of the career possibilities was lobbyist. And I just thought to myself, "Mm, bit of a stretch there. Now people in that industry may have that degree, but they tend to give those jobs to people that are very well connected, that have that strong network already. And that's not there. We need to have honest conversations about these kind of things. If we have those conversations when someone is 17, 18, we're sending them on a much better path when, as they move forward. Again, mm-hmm. you can still have a great, wonderful, prosperous career, but the earlier we get this information to them the or better. have these conversations, the better. I was having this conversation with the last episode with three of my close friends, and they brought this thing up that caused some sort of debate amongst us four. And they were saying how if you finish high school, there's something called a gap year or leap year or something like that where you take a year off mm-hmm. and you try to figure out what you want to do. And I was a person taking the stance where I thought 
it's good to take a gap year because then you could work, save up, and then pay part of your school tuition. And they were very against that. I said, no, that's not a good idea because to say what you were just mentioning about how building connections at a younger age and teaching our younger generation, networking is important and getting a job doesn't always mean you need to have a 99.9%. You can know someone that knows someone that knows someone, mm-hmm. right? And they were saying, yeah, don't tell people to to take that year off. But I still think it's not a bad idea to, to take that year off and really think what you want to do. But they were telling me, no, that, that's not a good idea. It's an individual choice. And what works for some may not work for others. Keep something in mind. A lot of youth took a gap year this year. But that was because of the pandemic. And they didn't want their first year of university or their first oh, year in yeah. law school or graduate school to be online. There is that perception that people are obsessed with technology and they're obsessed with their phones. But guess what? When given the choice, they wanted many wanted to learn in person. That's why they took the gap year. It always comes down to the individual. And if you want a year off to, quote unquote, find yourself, backpack through Europe as people, I don't know if they still do that. They used to do it uh, quite frequently or save money because you don't want a larger debt as you come out. By all means, do it and start university the following year or start community college the following year. However, if you're rushed yeah, or you're yeah, ready and yeah. eager to go, by all means, go for that too. But a lot of a lot of people, man, especially people from my culture or even... I wouldn't be surprised in the Indian culture and whatnot, yeah. how, how they put pressure on their children. I'm sure you've heard it. Lawyer, engineer, doctor. Oh, all the time. <laughs> my, my parents are from Hyderabad, India. My grandmother was, it was, she had this funny saying, she said, just be a lawyer. You sign one document. There's 50 bucks right there. <laughs> I remember seeing that, hearing that as a kid. How does that exactly work? I was yeah, eight yeah. or nine at the time. I didn't yeah. understand. But uh, it is that, that is that mindset. But you know what? And when I talk about a skills-based economy, you could be a mechanic, you could be a plumber, you could be a painter. These are jobs that can pay you well. You can make a career. There's always a demand. You can't outsource painting. You can't outsource mm-hmm. taking care of your car. Uh, car. One thing I do regret is I don't come as much in contact with those blue collar workers. I trained one young woman who uh, decided she wanted to go in demolition in 2008, but that was it. And I'd love to get more of those youth in saying, listen, that'd be interesting. Because we do a lot of soft skills training. We have leadership exercises. You didn't experience it because it was online, but we do them in person. And a lot of those people, they're going to have to manage teams. They're going to have to collaborate with others. So I'd love to get more youth from that particular background. See how that plays out. Yeah, no, no, 100%. Yeah. How do you identify and work with young leaders once they go through one of your programs? So like, once they finish this program, is it obvious from your point of view that, okay, like, this person has what it takes to really... Uh, or... I guess my question is, is it simply just somebody going through your program? Uh, once they come out, they're automatically ready for the, the job force and, and just to tackle that on? Or does it need to be specific individuals that really have it inside them and you just kind of pull it out? Here's what's interesting about that. I often refer to people as future leaders. I got that from Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. He was the former Prime Minister who, Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. He was the former Prime Minister of Australia. It was interesting because I was at the London School of Economics at the time. That's where I went to graduate school. And he walked into an auditorium. And being at LSE in London, you see a lot of great speakers, heads of state, leading journalists, people from uh, leading NGOs. And he walks into the room and in his beautiful Australian accent says, hello, everyone, or should I say future leaders? They would often address us like that. It's almost like they're speaking into existence. Mm. So if I look at someone, I have no idea who's going to be a leader or not, but I notice certain things. I look at the person that is very well-spoken that is prodding quieter people to engage. 
we have group activities that we do, and I'm looking at who's kind of running the group activities. I'll give you an example. On the last day of Get Job Ready, this always happens in the in-person session because we have more time to do it. You know I make you all interview in front of your peers. I close by saying, listen, I should never ask someone to do something that I wouldn't do myself. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to find a job posting. You all, as one group, get to interview me. I'm going to leave the room for 30 minutes, stand outside. I can't hear what you're saying, and you guys plan to interview me. I remember this happened in Calgary once, and there was a young girl named Hania. She was 17 years old. I remember on the first day, she had to come give me her parents' permission slip because she wasn't even of age in a group of predominantly people in their early 20s. And when that activity came up, she just grabbed the marker, got the whiteboard. She was directing people in terms of commenting, organizing it, deciding who was going to do what, playing those roles out. Now, it's one small activity in a career workshop. But if you can see a 17-year-old lead a group of 20-year-olds, you always think in the back of your mind, Does this, is this the person that she wants to be an engineer? Yeah. Is she, beyond being the next engineer, is she going to lead her own engineering company? Yeah. Is she going to have a startup? Yeah. Is she going to be one of you know, those top 30 under 30 lists. So you never know, but you see certain traits in people that demonstrate strong leadership. I'll give you another one. My former student, Akari Mehta, another Calgarian, Calgarians. She came to this country at a very young age. She was 16 years old from Japan. English is her second language. She just loved Canada. Now, Japan's a great country, a lot of opportunities, but she decided to settle here. Worked hard, always grinding. She would come to my sessions early to improve her public speaking. And she'd always be asking a lot of questions. She was very coachable. Yeah. And then last year, she was elected her students, uh, her peers in her business school elected her to be the student class president or the union president. And when I met her, I thought to myself, her work ethic and drive lead me to believe she'll be a future leader one day. Yeah. And then she gets elected to be the president of the student union and she just got a really good job uh, internship this summer. And so when you see people doing those things, you have to think, how can I contribute to their journey? Is it making them a better speaker? Is it actually telling them you see them as a future leader? Remember, a lot yeah. of young people and a lot of older people as well, they don't know their strengths in life because no, no one's ever said you're yeah. good at them. People don't point out you're amazing at speaking or you're really good at writing or you're an excellent scientist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell people what they're good at because sometimes they don't even know. And that's something really important as well. So when you see the groundwork there or you see the potential, you want to foster it and build that relationship with people. Okay, but yeah. Ali, it's not just with me. Sometimes I understand my limitations. For example, I met a young girl named Shireen, 16 years old. Check out this story. When she was in grade eight, she knew she wanted to be a lawyer. And you know those mock trials you do in school, like a pretend trial? She, there were two groups. She was on the defense side, I believe, or I can't remember if she was the prosecutor or not. And her group was her and a bunch of guys. And the guys weren't taking the assignment seriously. And one of them said, why don't you just go make a sandwich? Ooh. She was unfazed. And she came up with their uh, closing statement and they won the mock trial. And so someone like that, if that's what you're doing in grade eight, could you imagine what this person is going to do once they finish Osgood or U of T? But that person needs to be paired with another lawyer or a great legal mind yeah. that can take them to the next level. So sometimes it's kind of connecting that young talent, that emerging talent yeah. with someone that can kind of guide them and mentor them along the way. I noticed just because somebody doesn't talk a lot doesn't mean that they don't know what's going on or or is uh, slower or just seems that they won't be a good leader. For example, I'm trying to do this thing with people that I speak with, which is very simple things like hold eye contact, listen rather than just hearing somebody. There's a very subtle difference. If I hear you, then I'm just 
you're talking, I wait and I let you finish and then I say what I want to say, not really acknowledging what you had to say just now. But listening to you is absorbing what you're saying. Uh, that affects what I'm going to respond. And then I say that back to you. You know what's interesting about that? First of all, see the book on the counter right there, Susan Cain, Quiet, about oh, yeah. introverts in a world that where no, people don't shut up. Some of our top leaders are quieter people or introverted. They're not as robust, but they speak when they need to speak. And that should never be a barrier to people achieving big things. And I remember that was my own personal, one of my own personal biases as an instructor when I first started this. I would always assume the future leaders or the really the people going to be powerful in the mm -hmm. next generation were the ones that are always speaking up in class and always responding to questions. However, you got to get to know people on that one-on-one -on -one level. And when you do, you realize some of those quieter people, brilliant minds, but yeah. you didn't, you can't, for me, it's harder because I'm doing a four day workshop. <sighs> if you are a teacher in the high school system, or if you're a teacher in, or professor in the university or college system, you get them for months on end or a year. And then you can really maybe pull that out more, but no, uh, being a quiet person or more introverted, that does not, will not prevent you from achieving big things. Yeah, you can yeah. be that person. I did some research prior to this episode and I really was intrigued by your question that you posed on your LinkedIn, the about you section. Mm -hmm. uh, would you like to share that with everybody? What is your dream job? If you could do one job for the rest of your life, what would it be? Yes. It's open-ended, but it also makes people think, especially the younger generation. In the context of having a lot of people in a room, one thing is if people have similar career paths, they're more likely to talk to each other and become mm -hmm. friends with each other. All of a sudden, that's part of your network, which is really, really important. Another thing is I'm also curious about what people actually want to do, what motivates them. And third is, you know, IDRF has an obligation. We take seriously what people's career paths are. And if we can help them out, remember, sometimes businesses will call me or nonprofits will call me saying, do you know someone that would be a good program manager or a business analyst? If I know your dream job or I know what you aspire to do and I saw you work hard over a period of four days and I saw that you were easy to deal with or I saw you connected well with others, all of a sudden that little icebreaker turns into a position and that's happened more than once in our program. I think we're sort of cut from the same cloth in terms of you genuinely love helping people and I'm in a space where I want to give value to others and I'm striving to be a counseling psychologist. Good for you. And the job description is helping people through their lives and, mm -hmm. and the stressors of their life. So I'm going to turn to more of the love that you have for being active in sports, lifestyle that mm -hmm. you live is very similar to how I like to go for walks, go for runs daily, biking. And now that the weather's warming up, that's going to be more of an occurrence. I've been around sports my entire life. Love for the gym and the Raptors and whatnot. Has that been from just uh, when you were younger? You're asking about athleticism. Full disclosure, I was very overweight growing up. I was a terrible athlete you know you hear those sob stories about people saying well i got picked last well at least you got picked <laughs> and remember you talked about your friends that were doing good things my friends were very good athletes they were also very very competitive my best friend pavin i've known him since grade four he was an amazing baseball player very competitive at hockey and my good friend abbas great basketball player very fast and so what's interesting is that they excelled in those environments. For me, being overweight, I just didn't want to play team sports because individual sports I didn't mind as much because if I lose, it's on me. I didn't want to be the person that dropped the ball or couldn't score yeah. in crunch time, right? And it was just not something I was into. I dropped gym after grade nine. But So what got you into, like I see you now and like you just like love to be active. Why is that? I don't know. I just got tired of being overweight. I, <laughs> I got tired of being. And so in Very my straightforward. Yeah. And so in my twenties, I cleaned up my diet. 
I started going to the gym and I also became a morning person, which was weird because I'd always sleep in younger. And when I got into my twenties, I'd be waking up early. I don't sleep in now. I am up usually six, seven in the morning at the latest. I just love the gym. I love what I call the power of movement. It sets the tone for the rest of the day is if I don't get the morning workout and that's why these lockdowns have been driving me crazy is I don't have sustained energy for the rest of the day. And that's why I enjoy it. And remember it's in isolation. So that's what makes it more fun for me in terms of the Raptors. I'm five, seven. I was never going to make the NBA, but I love as a form of entertainment, they're the greatest athletes in the world. The NBA players. I love the team. I love the city. I've been following them since they were an awful team and I would watch those West coast games. So if you remember when they were bad, they would be in Sacramento, golden state, Portland, Utah, and just getting obliterated on a Tuesday night. Yeah. They were the laughing stock yeah. for a while. And I said, you know what? I still watched every game. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, go- I'm not going down. I'm, my eyes are, my eyes are shutting <laughs> and I'm still waking up getting them. And I remember it was funny. I think it was against Sacramento. They were getting blown out and Sportsnet's doing the close up of the faces and they're all morose and they're sad. And Leo Routon saying, well, you know, the Raptors, it's another loss and they really need to decide how they're going to turn things around. The season's coming to an end. And I just remember those days like it was yesterday, but I just love the game so much. There's something about the power of sports that brings people together. I've always found it fascinating. I've never actually watched a live Raptors game. I got to take and you, man. See, I'm a, you know, I'm a season ticket holder. You got to come back next year when they're back. We will go. <laughs> That's awesome. No, but I went to um, outside of the stadium. Uh, they call it Jurassic Park for anyone that doesn't know. And just I went by myself and I swear to you by the end of the game, I'm hugging people I've never met before. I'm sure. high-fiving people. And there's just something very nice about that. I also watch soccer, and it's, it's the same thing. So so just the, the, the power of sports that brings people together, I love it. We saw it when they won the championship in 2019. Is the whole country. It's amazing. When you think about it, we're in Toronto. The team plays here. Mm-hmm. There are viewing parties in Vancouver. There are viewing parties in Calgary, in Winnipeg. Whereas you've got American teams much closer. Seattle, Portland, Minnesota. Mm-hmm but it brings the country together. I love that. I love that. So we touched on it briefly, but I pulled up some studies where the, so this is a contrast to what we just spoke about, but the obesity problem that we have in North America, Canada and North America is high and it's been high for so long. What do you think? How high is it? That's scary. For Canadians, I believe it's, I have it here. I was going to get to it later, but since you already asked, in 2015, there was a study that was published where approximately one in seven Canadian children and adolescents are obese, but but it's interesting because that was 2015, right? Mm-hmm. So that doesn't count the pandemic that happened. So I don't yeah. even know if... Could gone up. Could it, gone up. It, it could, we know. most likely, like logically, it, it probably does. But I have cousins and nephews who are a lot younger. They're glued to the TV and YouTube and whatnot. So mm-hmm. especially now in, in, in the education system, recesses have not progressed, but rather regressed. So the, the, the time that you have in recess, when I was in school or maybe when you were in school it was a bit longer than it is now Mm -hmm. i don't know the exact numbers but my question is what do you think can be done for this problem that's so prevalent and so it's almost unspoken about or just assumed to be oh this is what it is and it's it's going to be like this it can't change no Uh, you know what we have to reject that kind of thinking of Of course of course uh, of course uh, you and i are on the same page on this one for sure you and i it's funny because before we put our mics on and our headphones on we talked about the netherlands and their culture of bike riding. bike riding. When you go to Netherlands, I don't think obesity is a problem. I mean, this is anecdotal, but visibly, when you look around, you just don't see it. To me, I'm not a dietitian or a nutritionist, a lot of bad food choices being made and a lot of inactivity. Mm-hmm. Jonathan Haidt, 
and Greg Lukianov have talked about this in their book, The Coddling of the American Mind. A lot less outdoor play and a lot less and a lot more indoor electronic devices. That's not a good trend. Physical activity is really, really important, but also not being in a caloric surplus is very important. You want to be either neutral or in a caloric deficit. If the rates are on the rise like that, we've got to be more cognizant of our health and there has to be more awareness around it the way there was around smoking, the way there has been around certain drugs or drinking and driving. We've got to be clear with people like, listen, eating a lot of sugar is just not good for you. It's a terrible habit. You're not saying anything that's groundbreaking. No. People know this, but but yet it happens every day. It is, and it is concerning, especially in North America. I think England is like that too, but it's not everywhere. I mean, the Scandinavian countries are much better in that regard from my understanding. Yeah. How do you do it? There's my no friend. right answer, man. Like, it, it, No, that's a lie. So there is a right answer on how to reduce this, but are people willing to put in the mental strength to tell themselves, okay, you know, it's 10 p.m., I'm not going to have that cupcake. I'll just eat it tomorrow or again like i don't want to make this too much about me but yeah. how how i live my life is six days i eat healthy one day i eat you bad don't. but that one day i try to go off so that way it compensates for my six days of eating clean do you follow the rock on instagram the rock, yeah i do of course isn't it hilarious obviously he's a healthy guy yeah. as he grows older he looks better than ever right yeah. he's he always highlights the cheap meals so the pancakes yeah. Yeah, the yeah. peanut butter yeah. and the tequila but he's consistent with his diet consistently Years, eating yeah, healthy decades, diets yeah. and if people are struggling with their weight or they're eating, especially you know in the year with the pandemic, mm-hmm. what I would say is mm-hmm. consistency is key. If you're consistently eating good foods, you're in good shape. But if you're not, that's it's where just, problems come in. And look, I, I, like, you have to enjoy life. I eat ice course. cream every week, <laughs> but if I ate it every day, I'd be yeah. in poor health. I try to tell people, if you try to dilute it and remove the buzzwords, if someone told me that if you do one thing over and over again, it will lower your risk of diabetes, various forms of cancer, asthma, high blood sugar, all this stuff I would do without a heartbeat. All you're telling me is I got to do, I got to move my body for half an hour, four or five times a week. It's been shown in studies. That's that's probably a good thing to start with. That Sign me up, you know? You know what? Is, I totally agree with you. And another thing is this. To me, there's always been that correlation between being physically active and wanting to eat good foods. Because if you put in an hour at the gym, or in our cases, you know, maybe you know the entire afternoon on the bike mm-hmm. or an hour in the pool, mm-hmm. you're going to think, you know what? I'm going to go for the asparagus or the salmon instead because you want to ensure that all that effort you're putting in in the gym relates to gains. And yeah, most it was of, worth it, right? Yeah, exactly. And I don't know what the percentage is, 85, 95, whatever yeah. the percentage. Yeah, yeah, most yeah. of it comes from your diet. But I remember I was working with a personal trainer and I had been working out, but I wasn't as locked in on my diet as I should be. And he called me out and he texted me and saying, listen, I know you're not eating properly. You're not committed to your n- nutrition and you're talking a lot about getting in shape, but you're all talk. It's just fluff. <laughs> it was. And you know what? He was right. And when you make the, uh, sometimes people need tough love. People need that stern voice, the vocal leader that says, here's what you need to be doing. And I did. It's a friend, right? Like it yeah. doesn't have to be a personal trainer where you pay money. You and I talked, and I want to go back to the earlier question you brought, because it's something that it's really, really important, Ali. A lot of times people are struggling. They can't find a, you know, the job that they want or they're not, they can't find career happiness. A lot of times, and the market is tough. Employers often will discriminate against young people because of a lack of experience. That's why we have Get Job Ready to teach people how to navigate the market, build connections and demonstrate skill sets that show you know, either you can do a job or you have the potential to do it in the future or demonstrate your volunteering to show you have the character that a company would mm-hmm. want. But a lot of times people are making mistakes. 
and no one's really calling them out on it. I see people with very negative social media. I see people write toxic comments and sometimes I just want to pull them aside and it's their personal platforms. I don't, and, and I tell you all this on day four, do what you want. It's your choice, but I'm telling you how people are perceiving you. Sometimes you have to pull someone aside and say, listen, that toxic comment you made on LinkedIn or Facebook or Instagram, that doesn't sit well with an existing network. If you're only applying for one or two jobs a day, I spoke to a recruiter and he said, if you're using online applications, which is really, really difficult, the chances of getting screened in are low, you should be sending 20 to 30 per day. If people aren't putting yeah, if you're not putting in the proper effort and you don't realize it, someone needs to be there to tell you. That's why it's important to have a mentor or a coach there. Well, regarding a, a bad comment on a social media platform, it, I think it's more of a reflection on how their life is going than it is on the person they're saying it to, right? Uh, like yep. if you say blank, 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 uh, then that just shows, oh, but you're not happy in life. Or I can honestly say not once have I ever watched a video or saw a post or anything and said, you know what, I'm going to rip this person a new one. Mm -hmm. I, that, that just even crossed my mind. Like I don't know if I don't like it, I'll just hop off of it. I just mm -hmm. won't continue watching the video. I don't know. There's a difference between const constructive criticism and just bashing the person. Let me ask you something. I, cause you know, it's your podcast, but Go I want to ask you a question. Now Go ahead. Cause I find this fascinating. Sure. Do you have people in your life that when they see you doing something wrong, that will pull you aside or say, listen, Ali, I don't agree with you. And this is what you need to be doing. Uh, that would be friends. I have one or two. Yes. I can think of, I have one or two that would say, Hey, I don't agree with what you're doing or Hey, it's your life and I'm not going to chaperone you, but just know that if you keep going down this path, it's not going to lead to a good thing. So yeah, 100%. And what I'd say, cause we did talk about people struggling with their careers or why it's so hard to find a job. If you're one of those people listening right now and you're struggling in your career, reach out to the five people you respect the most that you can rely on for an honest answer and just text them and say, listen, how could I improve myself? I've had people send me these kind of messages. Ooh, and good. if you, if a lot of people are saying the same thing and they know you well, and there's consistency in the responses, chances are there's some merit to it. DC of Netflix, Reed Hastings, he wrote a book called The No Rules Rules, Next Netflix and the Cultural Revolution. He wrote it with Jane Meyer, who's a very well-respected business writer. And he talks about Netflix's unique culture. Netflix is a hard place to work but it's obviously a great job if you can work at one of the world's leading companies. And they have something called the four approach to feedback. And he said, listen, we used to do anonymous feedback, but it didn't blend with our culture of transparency. So at Netflix, what people will do is they'll do something called the 360. A team is going out for dinner. It's an evening out, but you all take turns in a circle telling someone how they could get better. And when you think about it, someone is critiquing you in front of your entire team, in front of your boss. But he said, look, if you don't give people feedback, they're never going to identify their blind spots. They really need to know where they need to get better. Cause a lot of people think they're doing everything right. And they don't realize they're making those one or two mistakes that have held them back. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I will say search it out. So if you have that circle, Ali, it sounds like you do. That's awesome. Just use them as much as possible. You know, getting criticized, it burns. It is not something you always want to hear, but you always want to think, where do I want to be five years down the road, six years down the road? Usually it's that feedback that you get that will, essentially eliminate the barriers that you've been dealing with. I'll even tell you, instead of five, six years down the road, like you could just look two, three years down the road and see like, what's mm -hmm. the, these obstacles that you may come by in the short, near future, if that makes sense, like rather yeah. than looking like the long, long game 10 years from now. Mm -hmm, it does. If you tell someone, hey, what, what, what do you want to be in 10 years? It's so far ahead. A lot of people don't even plan the next year of their life. 
let alone mm-hmm. picture what the next 10 years are going to look like. So it's tough. Yeah. And you know what's interesting is that sometimes it's like these little tweaks that lead to the big differences. Mm-hmm. It's not a major transformation you have to do. It's like a small thing. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to bounce from topic to topic, but I just... Do your podcast, man. When I found this out, in Canada, we touched on the obese rates and whatnot. Approximately one in four Canadians over the age of 15 are obese. One in four. 25%. Approximately one in four Canadians are considered obese 15 years old plus, And the study found that the rates are in Canadian adults, not children. Okay. And they predict in this study by a few PhD students that in the next two decades, it could go as bad as one in three, which that, that doesn't make sense 33%. to me. 33%. That doesn't even make sense to me. Where do you think Canada ranks in the world in terms of global obesity? I wouldn't know. Just throw a number out there and I'll tell you. In terms of like, if you look at all the countries, are we top yeah. third? No. So we're seventh in the world. It goes America, Mexico, New Zealand, Hungary, Australia, the UK, and then Canada. Oh, wow. I wouldn't have, wouldn't have known. Yeah. I mean, it's obvious that the US would be number one. You know what? It's difficult. Like, I'm, I'm glad we're at a point where it's wrong to make fun of people for being overweight and Absolutely. shaming them. Absolutely. And Absolutely. It, it, nothing drives me nuts when I see a kid being picked on because of his weight. It just makes me so angry. It's bullying and I hate it. You don't know what they're going through. Exactly. But from a health point of view, this is teetering the wrong direction. And we need to, if that's the trend, uh, Ali, we got to reverse that because well, I don't yeah. want people to be stuck in cardiology wards or intensive care. I come from a South Asian background and we're at high risk for hypertension, diabetes, stroke. So many of my, my grandmother had diabetes. She passed away in probably seventies. Most of my mom's siblings have diabetes. It's not a good life. No, it's, you've got to take care of your health. So if we are, those obesity rates are going up. We need to do something to keep it down. I just don't know if it's done, you know, from a public government point of view, it's up to the individual citizens. You can't really police people's eating habits. Right. But that, that number is startling. There's been instances where someone got diagnosed and was sick and all their vital signs were trending in the wrong direction. And then the doctor said, unfortunately, you don't have much time to live. And it just doesn't seem like you're going to make it out of this. And this old man, I think he was a grandpa or something like that. He said he wanted to see his family and say goodbye, but they wouldn't allow him to do that. So he had to say it through FaceTime. I believe the head of the hospital there or somebody higher up told this doctor, no, you're going to allow this person to see their family. If we're in the same room as him, then the family can be in the same room and take the precautionary measures. I Mm -hmm. say this to say, so the family was there. And they were by his side. Four days later, he got better. Within a week, he was out. Oh, wow. Right? So it goes to show that the power of the mind, who knows how many people that passed away throughout this past year weren't actually just done for, but it's because the lack of connection with people that they love. Human touch is a powerful thing. Yeah, so I just thought that was very interesting that people could have still been alive. Human connection? Yeah. Lots to unpack there. I mean, I don't know the whole situation in terms of like safety precautions that have to be taken Mm -hmm. place in hospitals Mm -hmm. above my pay grade. My uncle died recently and oh, yeah, uh, thank you so much. And he's, he's not one of those uh, we're big Indian family, right? He's not one of those uncles. You just see at parties. He was just one of those wonderful, wonderful men. Mm-hmm. And I, he was in the hospital I believe Scarborough general and his family couldn't say bye to him. And he was one of those guys that you didn't expect to die. And he's a guy I love so much. I wish I had that one chance to say, listen, I always appreciate the fact that you were my uncle, but you treat me like a friend. You know, those uncles that are kind of like become your peers. And never had that. But when you were saying that story, Ali, it reminds me of those couples. You ever read about these in papers, in articles where a married couple has been married for 50 years. Husband dies, two weeks later, the wife is gone. 
and it's like maybe they couldn't live you know that death of a broken heart and so again it, it, it's one of the tragedies of the pandemic that people can't be in rooms with people as they say bye to them yeah and but i mean i don't think we can doubt that the power of human connection the feeling of love it's really important you know it's interesting so because i live by myself yeah when i'm not interacting with people every day it is kind of draining it's so weird i don't ever understood it but I remember one of my buddies, he had invited me over a couple of months ago. And I really interact with people. Let's come over, hang out in my uh, garage. Me and my wife will have you over. It should be good to catch up. And I remember leaving his house after that evening and gave him like the handshake hug to both of them. A hug felt so weird after, I think it was weeks or months of hugging anyone. It's That's amazing so crazy, right? how what we've done. Yeah. And it felt, it was like, you know. Normally, hugs are just like a normal thing. It's part of life, yeah. right? But it felt so warm and energizing. Yeah. Human connection is really, really important. Another thing you and I talked about before we started today is I'm meeting you for the first time. But I feel like I know you because of Zoom. And I did train you over four days. And we talk on Instagram, talk about sports, your podcast. But there's something. You're the first student I've met since November 2019. And this is much more fun. This is where you really get to know someone and connect with people. Absolutely. I miss that human connection. And I've developed friendships with people I've met and taught over Zoom over mm. the past year. And it was great as all across this country. But in the back of my mind, I always think, what would it have been like to be in a room with all these people, the 30? You can't replace that. So I'm hoping we do get back to that. Well, do you think the effects of this pandemic is going to be, if the effects are not something that we can come back from in terms of people are going to be forever conscious about the transmission of bacteria and masks and whatnot. What point do you think that we're going to go back to what it was like prior to COVID? Because some people I've spoken to said, yeah, we'll never get back to that. Nobody knows. There's no way we can tell, right? It's been the ultimate disruptor for our generation. I will say this. I think work from home is going to become a reality Staple, right? for a lot of people. I still take pride in an office. I still take pride or see value in connecting with people, building. I think you build a stronger company culture that way when you are around people. But what's interesting is this, and I go back to the Deloitte survey about the millennials. They do this every year. And those, so they have a, but this year they had a primary survey and they had a pulse survey. The primary survey was before the pandemic. All of a sudden, now the pandemic hits, all the views tend to be a bit outdated because you're, it's the ultimate disruptor. Yeah. Now people, your generation, they're more likely to stay with an employer longer. They were surveyed, and at first, people would think the mentality was, after two years, I'm going to find another job. Mm -hmm. That's dropped. Now, about 20% more want to stay at the job that they have because employers have adapted. Their lifestyle is also different now. There's The things that you often commute with a, a dissatisfied career, the commute, the yeah. stressors, the, the, uh, the, the cost of gas and dry cleaning, they're all gone. And employers, the business community has adapted mm -hmm. to where people say, you know what? They really looked out for me during the pandemic. Yes. They kept my job. They adapted to work from home. That's what I'm most curious about is how does the workplace look now? Because if people are more likely to stay with their businesses or have greater career satisfaction, I don't know if you want to go back to the way things were before, but I don't know if you want to totally transform it to the way they are yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, I have a bunch of friends that work in the government and they were saying that they miss stuff like traffic. Where, where they felt that that was a routine that they built. Yes. So in the beginning of, of COVID, that got disrupted pretty abruptly mm -hmm. and they had to adapt. I felt at one point prior to COVID, it was very, very, what's the word I'm looking for? Predictable? No, very, people just knew, wake up, do this and this, but now... Monotony. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. So 
Now it's still that, but in a different way. So mm-hmm. like you can almost roll out of bed 30 minutes before a meeting yes. and you're still fine, right? You know what? There's the conveniences that come. I spoke to there somebody is. that at McMaster saying, now I don't need to go to campus for a lecture. I can just wake up right 10 minutes before the lecture and log in. And like, there are those conveniences. Maybe we go to a hybrid model. And one thing I'm consistent on though, Ali, is if as the teacher, as the instructor, I expect people to have their cameras on. That's the one thing that, that frustrates me. I want to see your face as we're interacting and uh, teaching and, and you're responding is in in-person, there's no option. Like you're physically in you're a room, there. you know, you're not going to hide yourself. But people have, I've noticed that it's convenient for them to have their camera off. But for me as an instructor and for me who wants to build relationships with people and connect people, that's much more that's difficult. That's your goal, right? So yeah, that, yeah I, for me, that can't be uh, one of the new normals as they say. So what do you say to people that are down and just not motivated to do something? Is there an uplifting message that you've heard or that's helped you in your life that you can pass on to others that would really be impactful? Well, because of my profession, the first thing I say is, hey, how can I help you? But with something like that, Ali, it really comes down to the individual. I don't think there's one overarching lesson that you can give to people. That's, it's, you know those commencement graduation ceremonies they have in America where it's like, reach for the stars and follow your dreams. For me, it's always that individual. What does that individual want to do? And what is unique to that individual that will get them over the hump? So what I would say to them, like in terms, if they lack motivation, then that's a problem. Because to me, if you lack motivation, there could be a work ethic issue there. And you know how much I love Kobe, the guy who like, you can't, you, if you want to succeed, there is the template. I remember his trainer telling that story. He's talking about Kobe Bryant guys, just for anybody that didn't catch that. Please go ahead. There's only one Kobe. If anyone didn't catch that, man, we get, we get to have a talk (laughs) with him. But I remember his trainer, Tim Grover, had this story about Kobe training in Las Vegas for the season. And he would take his bike in the desert and deliberately at the hottest point just to get a tougher challenge in. His teammates at the Olympics, by the time they woke up and got to the training facility, he was already there drenched. So if you're not motivated, you need to turn to this guy because motivation is key. You've got to work hard. But, but for people that are down on their lucks or maybe they're feeling out of sorts because they haven't found a job that they want or they didn't get to the school uh, that they wanted, I would individually talk to them say, okay, what are your goals? What are your objectives? And what are your barriers? Let's eliminate the barriers. So we have to really focus on that kind of things. And maybe it's just a matter of them overcoming something like approach anxiety where they can't build their network because they're too scared to ask people for help or they're wondering how people may perceive them if they say they're unemployed and what i'd say to them if you're listening right now to the ali podcast first of all good the mentality the mentality podcast first of all subscribe share i I, I was playing your work i appreciate it but you know what reach out to people ask for help be unafraid to say you're unemployed because most people in the world are good i don't have a study to prove this just Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. personal experience, but people can't help you unless they know you need help. So reach out to the people in your industry that can help you. We talked about, you know, your education and it is important, but in addition to your transcript, identify five people in your industry that you'd like to connect with or that, you know, that's very important as well. But again, like I said, it would come down to that individual because everyone's uh, needs are so unique. For example, a lot of people now want to be nurses. The application for nursing has gone up. The desire to work in public health has gone up for obvious reasons. Consider what we're going through. So it's going to be a competitive job market. So for someone like that, I'd say, listen, what specifically do you want to do in public health? What do you think will make you happy? Have you identified the volunteer opportunities? Okay. That's 
very sound advice. Another thing people can do, first of all, write down what you want to do. Absolutely. People find studies have write shown down that when you, you write do, something down, you're more likely to achieve it. Another thing people can do is think about everything you have to do every day. Do the hardest task first. That's how you prioritize. You find if you get that first tough task done first thing in the morning, the rest of the day is falls in place. Yeah, it's much easier. How do you think people are going to respond when everything gets lifted from this pandemic and we get some sort of normality? I think Your there's, own opinion about there's going to be a huge sense of relief. People miss crowds. They miss sporting events. They miss concerts. I think that people appreciate the people in their lives a lot more. more now, a lot more. more. The funniest things I see is when people make jokes about how they would just always cancel plans. Now they're just so starving for plans. <laughs> just eager to see something. Yeah. People will travel more, but I think human relationships will be a lot more important. I hope that the era of going to dinner but having being on your phone the whole time is over. If we resort back to that, that's a loss because think about the the boredom or the loneliness or the lack of interaction. Appreciate those moments. There's, you don't need your phone at dinner. I'm going to go back to get job ready. I do this cool listening exercise. I can't remember if I did it with your group. Is for the first icebreaker, the what is your dream job? I could tell some people are just on their, they give their answer and then they're on the phone. They're not paying attention to what other people are saying. First of all, that's terrible when it comes to building your network. So what I do now is this. Once everyone's given their response, I say, okay, who can name one other person's dream job? Most people put up their hand. To see if they're listening? Yeah. Uh. Then I'll say, who can name two? Some people put up their hands. A couple of people in the last sessions could actually go four or five. They put their phone away and they were engaged. That's the level of engagement we should have. There's nothing wrong with using your phone. I use my phone all the time. I respond to messages, you know, pretty much within minutes. You probably yeah. noticed, right? Yeah. But it's part of the profession. But at the same time, if you're sacrificing eye-to-eye -eye contact and hugs just to be on your phone. You're missing out. No, you're missing out. So because I call this the Mentality Podcast, I end every episode the same. And I'm not sure if she knew this was coming, but what is your mentality right now in life? If it's a mantra or if it's something that you live by, what's your mentality when you wake up in the morning? That's a great question. It's a question I've never been asked. Let me think about it. What is my mentality? Ali, I'll be honest with you. I'm not a lockdown guy. I'm very extroverted in personality. So my mentality is let's get through this because I want to be in rooms with a lot of people. I want to amplify my voice and that's what needs to be done. But I'm I'm grateful for what I have. This has been a tough year. When I drive around the city and I see businesses shut down, the shutters, I hear, I get text messages from people saying their co-op was canceled or their internship canceled. It's heartbreaking, man. So my mentality is gratitude, but I know that now that we started our 28 day quarantine, I know I'm going to be lethargic and tired. Another so month. hopefully yeah. we can rebound as well. One thing I did want to ask you before we end, one thing that fascinates me, the debates on freedom of speech are hot now okay it is a conversation i'm about to read andrew doyle's book on free speech he's a british okay. comedian and satirist you run a podcast and you're a guy who's an expressive guy you're an excellent communicator a lot of people when they think of young people they think they see images of people canceling guest speakers they don't agree with on campus now i think that those get a lot of coverage that's obviously disturbing what are your views on free speech freedom of expression because you are in the creative industry now you're a communicator you've got a podcast so very interesting and I appreciate it when it's the other way around and the guest is asking me something. Yeah. So I think that social media has made it to a point where it's because social media keeps track of everything. Like if you have a Twitter, it keeps mm -hmm. back to if you made a Twitter in 2010 and you said something that at the time you thought was funny and you didn't delete it. And then later speaking by canceled, 
that they somehow, especially that once people start knowing you, mm -hmm. and even if it's a very like not the popularity of 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 other celebrities, people can find these things about you that are embedded in your social media platforms, and then pull that out and say. Also, you thought this was funny, but people change, right? Yeah. So maybe 10 years ago, the joke was okay to say this. And then uh, this happens to me a little. The 50 to 100 people that listen to this. I did a podcast episode with a cousin of mine. Her name is Diana. And she opened up about how she was non-binary mm -hmm. and how she doesn't identify with being a, being a, a daughter or a, a lady, right? Mm -hmm. I put that episode up not thinking anything of it because I want her to speak her truth yeah. and to be honest. And then I got somebody on my mom's side of the family who reached out and said, hey, can you take this down? Or can you wow. Can you not take down the episode? It was an amazing episode. However, I just want you to kind of tweak this part or can you remove it? I thought that was interesting because that was the first time where I said, oh, so I have to watch certain things that I say and I have to monitor specific uh, topics because if I just speak my mind unfiltered, unfiltered, which is kind of the goal of this, I really don't want this to be filtered to the point where you're not authentic. So yeah, uh, that's how it's affected me so far doing this podcast thing. You know what's interesting about that is, aside from a few notable exceptions, I'm very pro free, free speech. I love that you're a creator because, and I tell people this, it's great to consume it's fine but if you can produce and share your talents that's only going to be helpful and commented this is a professional podcast you've got the audio equipment there's no back noise when people have to understand something especially us that are now in the position to hire or people that have established their careers yeah. people make mistakes something they said like you said in 2010 that's not necessarily what they think is funny in 2016 17 yeah. 18 and I hate seeing people punished for mistakes that it made. I'm obviously, there are certain things that you just don't talk about. Certain of things course, that are egregious, like hateful, yes. racist, sexist. Threats. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And threats like that, threats of violence. But I did, I believe I read a report or I saw a video on college students stating that they don't always give their opinion or what, say what they're feeling in seminars or workshops because they're afraid they'll be shamed or so outed on suppressed? social media. Yes. Oh. They're, inside, they're telling themselves, if I say something, and someone posts on Instagram or someone says uh, on Reddit that I said this or said that, that's not how that a bunch of society needs to be. Because if you can't speak what you want yeah. and your truth, then what's the point of speaking in the first place? Because then it's like you have a filter over your voice and you're not being authentic. And I pride myself in trying to mm -hmm. anything I think. If anyone goes through previous episodes, that's how I felt at that time. And who knows, in two years, three years, maybe my views might yeah. change. So to take a clip and say, this is what you thought. Well, yeah, at the time I did. Yeah. But five years from now, that's not necessarily the case. But people, they shouldn't be constantly self-censoring themselves. And I had a good friend, a very good friend of mine, we were talking about this, about cancel culture. And she's pro-cancel culture. She said, it's not canceling people, it's holding people accountable. Oh. Okay. And my, my response was, no, because a lot of times people are losing platforms or losing jobs Millions, for a lot of like stuff. modest comments or just opinions that aren't hurtful. And you know what? Like you, like you're a podcast, right? How many times do you, because you talk for a living when you think about it now. Sure. Yeah. How many times have you thought, you know what? I want to say this, but what would an audience think? And that issue with the non-binary thing is yes. a perfect example. Now, when somebody says, hey, you should change that because I got offended, all of a sudden you may be thinking, I've got a great question or I've got an informed comment to make, but what if, what about the 50, 60 people out there that are thinking the exact same thing? The people that want to really, really police speech, they have done a good job of putting it in your head that, you know what, say what you want, 
but we're going to hold you accountable. Too. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of these issues, you need a free flow of ideas. You need a conversation. People shouldn't always think, you know what? I'm going to ruin my life because I say something that maybe is not conventional wisdom. Who knows how many people have suppressed ideas that could have led to a small seed that could have been something, mm -hmm. but that was never spoken about because of the perceptions that people might have on them. Especially when you're a figure. I, I can't imagine that. When you have, you know, these, these big, big influential people, I could even imagine somebody that would to do let's say a podcast episode with me, they have publicists and then people will tell them in their ear, hey, don't say this because it's a very hot topic and if you say something, it's very yeah. polarizing. It could affect your fan base. It's like, man, you got like, like they're almost like a puppet yeah, in a way to filter certain things. Well, what would, ha what would have happened to Muhammad Ali's career if he censored himself or thought, you know what, you're saying Absolutely. You're, you're a traitor and you're speaking out against the Vietnam War. Who Absolutely. do you think you are? I don't care that you're the heavyweight champion. Should he have self-censored himself? What I would just say to you, man, is, you're doing a great podcast. Keep what you're doing. Keep doing. I'm only going to get better. Yeah. And I always tell people, hey, please give me constructive criticism. Tell me, hey, Ali, you bounce ideas off too much or you speak too much or you, you don't contribute enough. Give me things like that and not, oh, this sucks. Oh, yeah, bro, why waste your time? It's how is that helping me? Right. So that's all I ask. Honestly, just just tell me what to what you think I could do better. And I will factor that in and I'll try my best. Thank you so much. Time flies. For time, man. I appreciate it. If I'm ever here, I'll shoot you a message. And like, if you just want to hang out or even that that whole thing with the Raptors. Yeah, we got to go to a game. <laughs> just, when the season schedule comes out, we'll, we'll, we'll make a plan, bro. Promise. I've taken okay. I, I've taken youth participants to games oh, before. Okay. And you're just going to be another one. That's insane. Thank you so much. And no this is episode 16 of the Mentality Podcast with Elias Bernay. Correct? Bernie. My goodness. I said it the first time. Thank you so much. And until next time. Take care.